This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. John O'Lanine, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thanks. Great to be here, Cheryl. Um, so let me just introduce you. I mean, it's quite um, an interesting biography. So correct me when I'm, if, if some of these facts aren't quite right. So Jono was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I know that's right because I can hear it in the, in the accent. Mm-hmm. At the start of the Troubles. He moved to Canada as a young boy and then spent almost 20 years traveling the world working as a forester, mountain guide, ski racer, humanitarian relief worker and writer. After the tragic loss of his young brother, Jono moved to the Himalayas where he lived for eight years, which culminated in a full month. So let me get this right, 2,700 kilometre walk? That's right, yeah, 2,700. Yeah. yeah, solo trekking trip from Pakistan to Nepal. Wow. Yeah, that's a long way. It is a long yeah, way. Yeah. How, how long does that take? Well, um, walking 30 to 40 kilometers a day, it took uh, four and a half months. Yeah, wow. it was the first time that anyone had attempted to walk the length of the Western Himalayas alone. And um, yeah, I did it. Yeah. And it was an absolutely amazing time. Magic happened come, every day. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, he also worked uh, for years as a project ma- uh, manager for Doctors Without Borders uh, in war and disaster zones around the world, during which time he was kidnapped. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not something I put on the passport, but no. yeah, it is true. And who yeah. kidnapped you? Uh, Maoist rebels in Nepal. So there was a civil war that went on in Nepal from about 1993 to 2003, four in that time there. Uh, 10,000 plus people were killed and hundreds of thousands were displaced. And I worked there with Médecins Sans Frontières uh, setting up uh, health posts in areas that were controlled by the Maoist rebels. Right. And how long were you held for? We were held for 24 hours, and uh, there was a lot of negotiation went, that went on that day. And uh, then in, uh, it was an absolutely insane day that I describe in the book as yeah. so many different things happened. But uh, in the evening time, late in the evening, after a, kind of a ceremonial meal with the local commandant, uh, he, he told us that we could leave, but we were very unsure if the, that was actually the truth. So uh, we went to the, the, the farmhouse where we were, where we were kind of, um, where we were staying, and then we got up at three o'clock in the morning and just started running. Mm, God. Okay, he's currently curator at the National Museum of Australia. Well, that must be a safe job. <laughs> <laughs> um, y- yes. Politically, not always so, though. No, yeah. no. But the animals aren't going to come and get you, are they? Mm. 
His books include River Trilogy, Into the Heart of the Himalayas and Perfect Motion. But he's here today to talk to us about Perfect Motion. Um, and this book appealed to me on a number of reasons. I'm a walker, not to the same degree as yourself. But I love the fact the subtitle is How Walking Makes Us Wiser. And I feel that the only way I can ever clear my head is to go for a walk. Right there, right there, Cheryl. You, you've said it. I mean, people every day say, oh, you know, they get stressed at work, mm. you know, at home. Mm. What do they say? Oh, I've got to clear my head. That's mm. actually code. Mm. That's code for but people don't I do go it, for though. a walk. Yeah, that's right. But people don't do it. It's as simple as that sometimes, mm. isn't it? Mm. Okay, so um, I want to start with where it all started. So the way that this, we work our podcast, it's called The Stories Behind the Story. Mm-hmm. So what got you here to tell us this story? Um, and I know yep. that that's a long story. It's a long story. <laughs> okay. So start from where you think is a good starting point of how you came to write this book. So uh, wow. In- okay. Well, I'll cut out. I'll cut out most of the childhood because growing- people have to read the book. Too, yes. So you don't want to tell yes. them everything. And yeah. uh, you know, it really starts in Belfast in Northern Ireland, surrounded by a, a family and an extended family of storytellers. Mm. But we'll cut to the chase. Uh, 1988, uh, a very cold winter's night, January 17th, uh, and my little brother was out on a lake in Canada training with the university rowing team, and a huge storm came up out of the Pacific. Six-foot waves on the lake. They were in uh, rowing shells, thin fiberglass rowing shells, and the boat overturned. Uh, the boat snapped in two, and eventually my brother drowned. He Well, he didn't drown, actually. He died of hypothermia. Mm-hmm. So um, that... Uh, that's a pivotal moment in my life, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Uh, at the same time, I was uh, I was training as a cross an international cross country ski racer, training for the Olympics. And uh, the day after that, and I hadn't didn't know that my brother had had uh, had died um, until a couple of days after. Uh, the day after that, I was told that I wouldn't get to race in the Olympics. So ten years of focus and training was kind of thrown out the window. In a you way. didn't qualify? I didn't, well, I actually qualified, uh, but as a reserve. Right. So I, it was, I yeah. might not get to race the race yeah. that I wanted to race for yeah. 10 years. And then I went home, um, still not to, to Canada at that point, still not knowing that my brother had died and that was told to me in the airport by my mother and, you know, I just collapsed. Mm. It was inconceivable. Mm. Uh, you know, a huge part of my life puzzle had been pulled out with nothing to to take it to take its place. And then we got home, and I remember my sister and I. You know, we went out for a walk, and we were talking away, and and uh, I said to my sister, "Wow, you know, things are really strange." Um, and thinking, of course, they're strange because my brother's just died. She said, yeah, yeah, you know, it's not just Gareth, but uh, mum and dad are divorced. Mm. <laughs> so so at the same time. Yeah. So your life dream. Oh, is my gone. life. Yep. Yeah. Your life, brother tragically mm-hmm, died. Mm-hmm. Life puzzle 
boom, out the door. And then the family puzzle has disintegrated too. And uh, this is kind of funny in thinking about it in retrospect in the time of 24-7 communication because, you know, I was ski racing in Europe. I talked to my mom and dad once a week, once every two weeks maybe. And for about three months, I was calling home and my dad would get on the phone and said, hey, is mom there? I'd like to have a chat with mom. And he'd be like, oh, no, she's gone to the shops or she's gone off the walk. They were divorced. He didn't tell me. He didn't so want to tell you. He didn't want to tell me. He didn't want to tell me because he thought, oh, that's going to disrupt his training for the Olympics. Well, of course, in retrospect, And how old were you at the time? I was 24 at that mm. time. It's formative, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When you get when you get a triple mm. whammy like that, it mm. takes a while to to resurrect. Mm. And you know that brings us into this story because you know I had two bad years, you know, booze, drugs, failed relationships, and it was it's called grief. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I didn't know it at the time, Cheryl. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people are in that situation. You know, when you get something so traumatic that you can't you can't place it, you can't comprehend it you, mm. you you submerge it you ignore it you you push it under and um that's what i did no mm. doubt about it and the start of my coming out of that downward spiral was a memory from childhood it was uh going to the library with my mum and my brothers and my sister walking to the library going down there and choosing our books for the week and usually I would choose uh, you know a kid's mystery like Enid Blyton or Hardy Boys or something like that and then I would gravitate towards the mountaineering section which were the books that were quite popular in Britain in the 1970s and I would open up that book and in the middle of that book there would be those color plates with these men and women in bright down jackets in these incredibly vertical environments titanium white snow all around depthless sky spaciousness Do you know I look at those I I worked in a library mm-hmm. um, and it, maybe it would have been around about the same time and then I went from library to book selling but I've always looked at those books as well and thought these people are crazy <laughs> So we both had a different perspective. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I wonder, I all, always look at it and think, I mean, even in that recent um, conversation about um, the Himalayas um, with mm-hmm. yeah. this year, wasn't it? Yes. That there were too many yes. people and there was a lot of travel, you know. Yep. And I do mm. look at that and think, what possesses you to do that? Mm. Well, um, it's challenge. Yeah. It's challenge combined with freedom. You know, people have different interpretations of freedom. And, you know, when you push yourself to the absolute limit, whether it's psychologically or physically, um, you're in complete control. And, but you're and, not uh, really. You're not really. Yes. No. no so, I mean, we can, we can step back and, and, and think about that. Because you're in, chained to the mountain and you've got 40 people behind yeah, you and 40 people. Well, I, yeah, that's interesting. You know, when you think about Everest right now with the lineups of people going up there, to me, that has absolutely no attraction at all. Right. But okay. I'm still attracted to trekking and climbing in those high open spaces on my own or with one or two other people that I completely trust. That's completely different. Okay, talk to um, me about that. Well, so you, you saw these books. Saw those books and uh, decided as a small child that's where I want to go. And it was because it was because in Belfast at that point in time, you know, the troubles were raging. The British Army was there on the streets. I could see them every day. Those young guys in complete fear. They were completely out of control. Like they. 
you know, they just had to follow orders as as precisely as possible and pray that nobody shot them or blew mm. them up. That is, that, is, that is a lack of control. And the opposite of that was then seeing those men and women in the Himalayas doing what they wanted to do, rising higher and moving into this spaciousness, this, mm. this area of, of complete freedom mentally and physically. Yeah, look, you know, I, I, in a sense, you know, you, you're grieving. I get that. And, and that's so personal. And then you have these exterior factors that are just troubling as well. Like I, mm. I look at people now and, you know, you, you look at depression and all sorts of things that are happening now. And I, you think, of course, I mean, you know, you might have your own personal tragedy, like losing a brother. And then you've got the world factors to consider, you know, mm. terrible things happening all around us. So, you know, I, I get that that is... I think it's layers of grief. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and really, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't perceive of those layers. Yeah. You know, I didn't understand where I was. But it was that image of freedom and spaciousness that became my goal at that point when I hit rock bottom. And, uh, you know, within six months, I was in the Himalayas. How and, did you go about that? Ah, oh, well, I was very fortunate and I had this incredible job where I could work for three to six months a year and then do whatever I wanted for six to nine months a year. I could make a lot of money, you know, back in the, it was similar to what a fly in fly out worker does now, mm. uh, in the forest industry in Canada. And, uh, I could make a lot of money in a short period of time and do whatever I wanted to do. And I did that job for 18 years. So I got to do so many incredible things. Um, and, that was my goal. So there I was in the Himalayas, kind of sitting in this bus station in Leh Ladakh. By uh, yourself? By myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm, uh, I'm someone that's not troubled about being alone, you mm. know. That, that probably bothers my wife. <laughs> but, but I'm not bothered by that. I'm happy with my own company and I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person that can make friends easily. So, uh, and, I'm a pretty confident guy, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to do and, uh, you know, I went there for a season of trekking and I ended up spending eight years there. I absolutely loved it. Mm. Did you go over specifically thinking this is a healing journey? Is that... No, 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 not at all. No, I went there, uh, again, not understanding my grief and definitely not understanding the gravity of the loss that that I'd had uh, I went there I went there for an experience I went there for traveling for adventure uh, for adventure absolutely yeah. yeah um and it wasn't until years later that I understood the the complexity of all those years mm-hmm. and tell me what did an ordinary, ordinary day look like in the Himalayas yeah uh, get up in the morning, um, go down to the local restaurant, have an omelette with my friend there, Punsok Dorje, who's my, he's, he's actually my adopted son in India. He's, he still lives in India. I go and visit him every few years. Um, and he was, he was a waiter in this restaurant. So I'd go and see Punsok every day. We'd have a little chat. He wanted to practice his English. Then I'd go for a walk, a long walk. I'd come back. I would, uh, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I would read, and then I, I, was, I was involved in Buddhism. You know, I was studying Buddhism, so there were monasteries there that I would go to. Uh, I would meditate there. I would, I would talk with different teachers there, Buddhist teachers, Tibetan teachers. And then, you know, that was kind of during the day, and in the evening, I'd go out, have some dinner, read some more, go to bed. And so there was that, that time was really, really defined by reading, walking, and listening. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I I did that for I did that for eight years. I was so blessed. I mean, imagine I can't imagine now having the time to investigate so many things. Absolutely, absolutely free of any type of you know academic or or, or commercial restraints. You mm-hmm. know, I work as a curator at the National Museum, so I'm I'm blessed to be able to investigate things. But I'm told what to investigate. In those years, I just investigated what I wanted to. And from that, how did your passion for walking long distance start? Tell me about that journey. Oh, well, you know, I think, again, that goes back to childhood. Mm. Um, Because I I, I can still remember going for walks with my mom and my brothers and my sister. And what kind of walks were they? Oh, just just out the back, you know. uh, just walking in the lanes in in West Belfast, uh, out on the edge of the the town and the country. Uh, so we were away from downtown and the bad stuff. Um, and it was just really walking those lanes. And again, the memory that I have of that is a time of joy and discovery. You know, it was me and my siblings playing, uh, looking at things, getting dirty. You know, my brother always had a pair of plastic binoculars around his neck that didn't really magnify anything. I had a compass <laughs> that didn't work, but we felt yeah. like adventurers. Yeah, and that that memory stuck with me like them. and looked like them just yeah. as importantly. <laughs> yes, uh, so we just you know it was it was it was a time of uh, it was a time of discovery and a time of happiness, and that stuck with me. Obviously, mm. you know. It, I mean, I'm sure later on we'll talk about the metaphorical meanings behind walking, but that's that is deeply coded within me that walking is a, is is about discovery and joy. Mm. Well, I want to talk about that big journey you took. Mm. So talk start how did well, you get how did you get there? How do we get there? Uh again, you know, it's it's funny because I look back on that uh that journey completely differently than I looked at that journey when I was planning it. You know, I was planning it to do something where I would be the first person to do that. You know, and, and it was it was in relation to those books that I read as a child, those climbers in the Himalayas. I was going to be the first person to work, walk But that's, solo. I guess, you know, when you look at explorers, I guess that it, that's what it's about, isn't it? Oh, yeah. To be breaking new ground and to be the first person to yeah. do that. So yeah. I can see where that came from. 
But Cheryl, the interesting thing is when you start to talk to explorers and adventurers and, uh, you know, start asking them about their motivations and their backgrounds and their deeper thinking about it, there's always something else going on. Um, I don't know if you saw that, that amazing film about Alex Honnold climbing El Capitan and his family background there. Incredible. You know, you, you, I know some of the, you know, the top climbers and extreme adventurers so in Australia. So you're suggesting and, that they're, they're in some kind of healing process? If not healing, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a way for them to try and understand themselves in some way. It's, uh, you know, you don't, you don't undertake uh, climbing an unclimbed mountain or walking 2,700 kilometers solo through the Himalayas or climbing El Capitan solo without any type of protection. Uh, you don't undertake that lightly. And um, in all honesty, those types of undertakings are extremely selfish. That's the truth of it, you know? I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, 20 years ago when I was yeah. thinking about doing this, uh, I didn't think of it like that, mm. you know, because I didn't have the the deep connections I have now with, with my wife and my kids, of course. Um, and, you know, do something to do something that you could die in, you, you have to have light connections all around you. It's the same with extreme sport. I mean, you, it, mm. it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? Just one, yeah. it's, you know, just they're at opposite ends, I guess. Yeah. Uh, one happens very quickly and one happens very slowly. Mm. But uh, I do think there's a self selfishness about it. But also I think that the healing process is selfish, the grieving process is selfish because really it is just about you getting through that. Mm -hmm. So I think when you're in it, you do have to look after yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, my, my interpretation of grieving actually... Um, Yes, it is a selfish process, but to start to start breaking out of that, you have to you have to expand the way that you're thinking. You have to break out of the compressed air that grieving actually places over you. And um walking is a way to do that. Walking is a way to expand your horizons and, and, and break out of that that compressed space that is the eye. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with that. I actually agree with that. Okay, so tell me about the journey, the long journey. Long journey, well, uh, walking, 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 walking. You know, that's what I did every day. Get up in the morning, start walking. And when you walk that much, it becomes a meditation. Mm. You know, it becomes it becomes the the, the physical the physical uh, simplicity behind it. Well, the the overall simplicity because you have your entire house, your all your belongings on your back. Mm. You know, you start walking in the morning. You walk until an hour before sunset. You find a campsite. You set up camp. You make dinner. You look at the sunset go down and you go to sleep, you get up in the morning, you do it all over again. Mm. And I was walking through some of the most amazing landscape in the world. And, you know, eventually I was feeling that deep connection, that 
I would think that all nomadic people feel between themselves and the landscape, that moving connection between yourself and the earth. And at the same time, you know, I talk in the book a lot about flow states and how when you lose your sense of self, then you uh, you open yourself up to all types of new ideas. And that's what was happening in that walk. You know, yes, it was, yes, there was incredible beauty. Yes, there was magic that happened every day between myself and people on the landscape. But at the same time, there was this space to be able to look at my brother day after day after day. And of course, without me realizing it before I went into that walk, that was the imagery that kept coming back to me. It was Gareth in all kinds of different ways. And in in Hinduism, there's a, there's a term called darshan. And darshan um, means looking in Sanskrit. And it is, it is something that Hindu practitioners do all the time in ceremony. They're looking either at a religious object or a teacher or a piece of sacred landscape. And they try and look at that in different lights from different angles, different times of day. And that's exactly what was happening between me and Gareth. You know, it was the ability for me to consider him really in a complete sense. And I think that combination of the view and the walking, the metronomic simplicity, the meditation of walking broke down that grief. Mm. It exploded it out. And, you know, I refound faith in humanity and I refound spaciousness. And in the end, I refound hope. Mm. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that none of us will, in the society that we live in now, um, and particularly living in cities like Sydney or Melbourne or even Canberra, you don't take that time out, you know. I mean, very often people are, you know, they're driving or they're catching public transport, they don't even have 10 minutes to walk to work or... And that's the problem, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's an absolute shame, you know. Mm. I mean, being able to... and. The, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I've written this book, you know, mm. is to encourage people to try and take that time. Because for me, it's not about 10,000 steps. Mm. You know, it's not about chalking it up on your pedometer. It's just about getting out there, putting one step in front of the other and feeling that joy, mm. feeling that spaciousness, mm. feeling, feeling the confidence that you get with understanding that you are part of the most communicative, the most creative, the most powerful species on earth and there's also a chemical like it's actually there is you know oh. a, a chemical reaction oh, it absolutely. actually is happening isn't it oh yeah yeah i mean i, I dwell a lot in the book on the neuroscience mm -hmm. involved in the relationship between walking and creativity as soon as you start walking the flow of neurotransmitters in your brain changes that creates a more spacious mindset your neuroelectricity starts to drop down into that same type of hertz level that you're in when you're meditating. And if you keep walking for a little bit longer, 20, 30 minutes, then actually your, your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that tells you to do stuff, the part of the brain that actually creates you, Cheryl or Jono, it starts to slow down and you start to lose that sense of self. And when you start to, when you start to lose that, then what happens is you're really able to look at things from a completely new angle. That's, that's the magic in it. You know, being able to look at problems in a new way is, is a gift. It's a gift that, you know, 
pharmaceuticals have been trying to give us for a hundred years now. And, in and fact, it's free. And it's free. And it's accessible. And we've been doing it for four million years. Exactly. I mean, I think too, you know, we get into jobs and even my job running this business and you come into an office and you expect that, you know, all the ideas are going to come to you while you're sitting in front of a screen. It's just not going to happen. No. Like for me, the only motive, the only times I have come up with things that are valuable or ideas or whatever it is, is through either walking or swimming. I mean, mm -hmm. swimming does that for me as well. But mm -hmm. they're those things when you actually clear your head and get rid of all the clutter. That's right. That's, that's when and clarity that's, comes. You know, clarity, you know, that's mm. the gift right mm. there. Uh, especially in this time and age, mm. you know, when we are constantly bombarded with new things that we're, we're supposed to learn either professionally or privately um, the idea that we have to assimilate all this all this data I mean I don't call it knowledge or wisdom we are just forced to assimilate data every day and, and for and what, for well, I don't what? We, we even know it do you know I'm, we've, we've got to wrap up soon but I'm going to make a comment on this we've just got started Cheryl I know I know but I think our 30 minutes is up but do you know the other thing that really bothers me is that whole movement towards, um, you know, fitness and active wear and people needing to have the outfit to do whatever has to be yeah. required, where in actual fact you can just walk with the clothes that you have on, Absolutely. with the shoes that you have on. Like, that is just, to me, it's just rubbish and mm. you're going into an environment that's even more stressful. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, no. And we're sold on it. You know, people on the 10,000 steps or the 15,000 steps or whatever it is. Yeah, which is completely unsubstantiated, by the way. Is that right? Oh, yeah. The 10,000 yeah. steps actually comes from uh, a Japanese manufacturer in the 50s and 60s created a pedometer that went to 10,000 steps. So that became kind of the benchmark for what you should Because it was the highest it could count. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no real medical evidence around it. Crazy. Yeah. All the right. medical evidence is there, though, about the relationship between walking and creativity. And creativity is adaptability. And adaptability is what has created Homo sapiens as the dominant, the most creative, the most communicative species in the world. Yeah. I'm sold. I'm sold. Read the book. It's called Perfect Motion, How Walking Makes Us Wiser. Thank you so much, Jono. It was great to chat with you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.